This is a Podfire production. This podcast may include explicit themes or swearing and may not be suitable for children. The world is full of amazing people, and once a week, I get the opportunity to interview one of them. My name is Brett McCallum, and this is Awesome Humans. In today's episode of Awesome Humans, I'm joined by Andrew Lopez. Andrew is the director and co-owner of Summer Nats, Motor X, and Out There Productions. Andrew has 23 years experience in the business. Wow, that's a long time. And as a managing director in the event industry, He's had experience in the delivery of automotive lifestyle festivals, major public events, sport presentation, and cultural celebrations. So Andrew would know better than anyone what it'd take to run this successful event, and obviously been suffering in the last few months. Although he didn't study this at university, he actually studied a bachelor's degree in science. So what made a man like this work in the event industry? Let's find out. G'day, Andrew. How are you, buddy? Great, good to be here, and you can um, you can call me Andy. Otherwise, I feel like I'm talking to my mum with a deep Mate, voice. I hope, hopefully, I haven't got the same voice as your mum. <laughs> 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 totally. <laughs> anyway, Andy, how are you, mate? You all right? Yeah, I'm really well, Brent. And yourself? Mate, I'm I'm excellent. This is actually uh, number four in our post-COVID edition um, of of awesome humans we uh we did a lot where i was locked up at home i'm back in the studio now and uh also back in my office and uh so yeah we've got a lot, a lot clearer uh voice and things now and and we can talk about some of the stuff that's gone on so yeah you, you would have been massively affected over the last few months wouldn't you yeah it has it's been pretty it's been pretty full-on like we you know it's it and <sighs> We have sort of two parts of our business, as you, as you sort of outlined. So I guess one of the things that we do is we stage events for other people, which is our out there production side, and um, and that's been running for 23 years. And then the other side of the business is the car festival stuff, and we own those events, um, and they're the ones that probably have been actually a little bit more flexible about what we've been able to do during the COVID time. So the yeah. car festivals, because because we own them, or do them in partnership with government in, in a couple of places. We've we fairly quickly took a decision to postpone them. Um, one of them into next year. One of them to the very end of the year. Our flagship event, Summonats, is in January, so we're comfortable that that will take place in some shape or form. So we were fairly proactive about that. It takes a lot of work, as I've found out, to reschedule events. I've never <laughs> had to do it before. Um, but sure, for sure, the the agency side with the events that we did for other people, that um, the bum just fell out of that straight Man, it's away. Beating, wouldn't it? Yeah, and it was, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I've never never really experienced that thing where you, my my missus and I were actually taking a very poorly timed trip to Fiji. On the thirteenth. Oh well, March. Nice. yeah, I know it was great. It was a very good time. It was the holiday, the holiday that I'd promised my wife for ages because I, I hadn't had a day off for probably nine months except for Christmas. And I said, oh, I'll take you to Fiji. And then, as just as it would happen, we we were we were at the airport about to fly out the day that the Formula One got cancelled. Um, yeah. And I was sort of reading that and thinking, this is not great. And then, and then the further the information that's out, rolled out that morning was that mass gatherings of over 500 people, which seems like a luxury now. That's aspirational today. Yeah, exactly. Um, in this period, but mass gatherings of 500 had been cancelled indefinitely, and that's that's our world. Like we don't do small events. And I said to my missus, um, "Looks like the ass just fell out of the business for the next period of time. <laughs> um, let's go and have a cocktail." <laughs> did, you go, did you end up going to Fiji? Yeah, we did. And we were, we were going to go for it. We were there. For, look, we it was it was a difficult one. We had our kids were we had one of those miracle things. A family friend had offered to look after our kids at home. It was a holiday just for my wife and I. And we just thought, look, I oh, know. Let's just go and do it. And mate, we got there. I spent two weeks. I spent the whole weekend on the phone rescheduling my very <laughs> soon upcoming advances. And. Um, and it's then not, the it's guy, right, honey, I won't work. I promise. Yeah, I know, I won't work. I said, oh, <laughs> "What are you going to do?" And then, um, and then the um, and then the government had said, "Look, come home, everyone. If you're overseas, you have just got to come home because we're starting." And by the so by the time we flew home, so we left. We we only stayed. We cut our trip short. Came straight back because because we were sensible. We couldn't take the risk of being locked away from the kids. So we got back pretty much straight away and uh, went into. You know the self um, isolation. Yep. Did that for two weeks. Um, 
actually had a ball with my missus oh, and my kids. Yeah, we kept the kids home from school and yeah. they're young. So we just had a like a self in was like an enforced family holiday in the house, you know. Just it's amazing uh, what you can work out what to do in the house as well, isn't it? Oh, totally, mate. <laughs> a lot of a lot of stupid, like a lot of stage photo. I did a, a 14 day isolation photo diary, which um got sketchier and sketchier as <laughs> time went on. A lot of costumes, occasional drag outfit. I may or may not have allowed my son to have a half shot of vodka just to see what would happen. <laughs> How to old him. is he? Twelve. He said, oh, give me some, I, I, I said, give me some vodka and I was like, yeah, all right. What what could possibly go wrong? Gave him a bit, he nearly vomited. But oh well. But you know, he was I'm exaggerating a little bit. It was of uh, only a, but only a little. Um so we had it we actually and that's you know, so we had a um, we had a great sort of a funny and and joyful sort of isolation period. Well, they're um, gonna remember that for the rest of their lives. Totally. Um but it was very difficult to you know, I was I worked through that time obviously with my with my office and that sort of thing. And so we kept in contact with my obviously in daily contact with our team. We really had we have team members all like and we have Melbourne, Sydney, yeah, uh, Wollongong, up where I live in Kingscliff is our sort of hub. Um, so we really quickly had to figure out, you know, what what are we doing because we're not running yeah. events at the moment and yeah, but. It was. It was also. It was very, very hard to read what was going on. We were lucky in the sense that we were well placed for something like as well placed as you could be for something like that. In that, a bit of um, surety of our own events. The events that we lost from the agency side, we were at the end of a sort of a season anyway, so we were okay. Um, yeah. We didn't lose too much. But watching, uh, watching a lot of friends and businesses and that in the live events industry, just you know. I destroyed Just overnight. Destroyed, destroyed overnight, you know, and it's, we we sort of, you know, the events industry is always one that's been very generous about providing, doing fundraisers and awareness and support for other causes and, you know, but as it seems to us, leaving international travel aside, we'll, we were the first to go and we'll probably be the last to come back. Yeah, um, in that's this so new, true. In this new world, so, Yeah. Mate, we, we do a lot of stuff with gyms and things and yeah. uh, the whole industry was killed overnight. It's yeah. like at, at 12 o'clock tomorrow, you're shut. It's like, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, fuck, exactly. Yeah, what do you – and it's, <laughs> look, you get it. Like it was really – it was – it was, I don't know, like we just – fatalistic's not the right word. We just went, oh, well, this is what it is. There's no yeah, point. You can't do anything about it. Can't do anything about it. I felt, I, and I, you know, as I said, I felt it was really like, and we're blessed in the way of where we were positioned at the time. So we didn't do it as tough as as most in our industry. And it was very, as I said, very hard to see friends and colleagues and businesses and that sort of stuff just in real struggle town. And there was, I think generally in the community, there was so much, so much anger and 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 that on social. I think there was a there was a period of time where Everything you read on Facebook was, you know, that if I, I don't know if I can stay on the podcast, but you can beat me out later. Like that, no, stay, the, stay the fuck at home. That message yeah, and people shouting it. And that was, you know, you get it. Stay the fuck at home. Stay the fuck at home. And then people railing against this and that. It was, I think we sort of fell apart only for a minute. Yeah, but for I a think big the, minute. It was a big minute. And, uh, you know, like we were, as I said, we were locked in the house and I was talking to a mate who said, oh, I said, what's it like? Like, Said so I was fascinated. I hadn't been able to see any of the panic buying because we just missed it. Yeah. And honestly, by the time we cut, well, the time we got let out, it was all over. I was like, "Fuck, missed that." But Maybe my mate said, "Toilet paper." Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> Mate, I've, I've I've got I've got a ten and a twelve year old boy. We are always <laughs> prepping with toilet paper. They are gluttons for the stuff. So no, we were fine, and and we had friends do shopping for us and stuff, and that was good. But a mate of mine. It was just insane, though. Like, I've got a family. I've got four kids, right? Yeah, so wow. We, we actually go through a whole heap of food, whole heap of toilet paper and all stuff. So every time we went shopping, my missus is there going, I've never shopped so much in my life because I'm only allowed to get two of everything. <laughs> exactly. Whereas we need six of everything. Oh, I know. Exactly. Uh, it was just my, bizarre. Yeah. I know. Mate of mine, Brad, like, he, like similarly, he's got four kids and stuff, and he said, you know, so to go to Coles, and he said, as far as I can tell, 
Australia plans to spend the next four weeks making spaghetti bolognese and <laughs> sitting on the sitting on the fucking toilet. That's all anyone seems to be looking at doing. So, oh, it's so true. The other yeah. thing was is when they brought in the uh, you, you, the frozen vegetable thing, you could only have two lots of frozen vegetables. So I had some chips, right? But they're a potato, so they're classed as a vegetable. So you couldn't actually get frozen vegetable and <laughs> and chips or hash browns. You could yeah. only get one of each. So we yeah. were sending the kids in like they were coming out with two bags of each. <laughs> it was just insane. Oh, it's hard. It was such. It was hard. And so, you know, but and then you know the government response and all that. I mean, I'm the. I, I just. I think. I think pretty quickly though, everyone kind of sorted some stuff out. You sort of you saw the temperature of things come down on social and that, but you know that that just the the anger and the fear and stuff yeah. like that was sort of started to come down a bit and reduce a bit. And I think the good results that the strategies of being locked down, we saw that it was making a difference to things. And we've probably been apart from the massive economic stuff that everyone's going to have to face now oh, and, and yeah. for future generations. But what do you do? Like it is. The in depression the end, happened is. in twenties and westerly. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I I said to my kids, you know, sucked in. Yeah, you're going to be fucking paying for this. I won't be. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, I, love it. I, I don't I, understand, I, but they will. I don't understand. I said, yeah, mate. <laughs> wait till you, wait till you, wait till you're paying forty percent tax when you're older. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or you get another twenty eight percent interest rates. Yeah, oh, shit. <laughs> unlucky. But, unlucky. Uh, no. Yeah, it, so, the whole, the whole idea of this podcast is to learn about you, to hear your okay, life yeah. story. So uh-huh. where were you born? Where, where did born it all in, start? I was born in Sydney. Um, I was the son of a, um, of a first-generation immigrant. So my dad my dad um, migrated to Australia from the Philippines in uh, 1961, came out in the, um, you know, the hotbed of the white Australia policy and yeah. all that sort of thing, came with five brothers, one sister and his two parents, um, they were Spanish Filipino, um, Spanish Filipino mix, and said moved here in the, 60, in, the in the early sixties. My mum, uh, so it's my dad Manuel, and my mum Mary was a music teacher, um, educator, mad event and theatre person. Um, grew oh, up really? In, yeah, grew up in country New South Wales. Um, my mum and dad met at a swinging sixties party and were married. My dad was engaged to someone else at the time. They met and were married within three months, which uh, led to a very uh, turbulent, t- tempestuous, tempestuous marriage. But we were, my sister and Kate and I grew up in, um, you know, said I was born in 70, grew up in the 70s in just suburban Lane Cove, Sydney, um, played music, wasn't much into sport, loved sport to watch it, too lazy to play it. Yeah. Um, and, you so know. Where did you go to school, Lane Cove? No, I went to school. Yeah, I went to school Lane Cove, um, uh, St Michael's in Lane Cove. Mm-hmm. Good little Catholic school, and then um, I went to an independent school called St Aloysius from the time I was third grade through to year twelve. Um, Jesuit school, quick with a quick with a strap. Like <laughs> the loved loved to belt kids at that school. It was all a ruler right. across the knuckles. Oh mate, no, <laughs> didn't waste time on the ruler, mate. It was a, like a f- four inch. Four-inch strap of leather across the hand or the ass, depending oh, on nice. who the teacher was. So it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a very, um, a very strong on, very strong on discipline, and strong on edu- and strong on education. And, and despite all of that, I actually really, I really love the school and and so forth. Like it's. Yeah, what it's sort different... of kid were you? Were you a, a nerd, a jock, or uh, uh, get on with everyone never... type bloke? Yeah, I used to, I used to get on pretty well with most people. Like I was, I was certainly wasn't a jock. I was a. I was a skinny little wog boy, you know, mainly um, mainly Anglo-Saxon, yeah. mainly Anglo-Saxon school. There was one other. There was only one, only probably actually. There was one other guy of European background and two Asian dudes. And I actually didn't quite realise that I was part Asian until I was a bit older. I didn't quite realise what the whole Filipino thing meant too. So <laughs> I, I was probably the only hybrid um, <laughs> in there. So I was, I was, I, I got on pretty well with people. Um, you know, I was. In, I was in. I was. I was. I wasn't bad. I wasn't. I wasn't particularly good. I was a little bit devious, as most kids tend to yeah. be. It's playing. I played the keyboard. Like played the piano. And grew up playing piano. I was quite musical when I was younger. Played. Formed a number of different bands at school and that sort of stuff. Um, 
my house, the house that my sister and I grew up in because of my mum was very musical and very, you know, like there was, she taught music at schools and she went on to produce this show in, in, in Sydney called the uh, New South Wales School Spectacular. She started it um, in the sort of early 80s when I was about 13. So we always had, you know, creative people in the house yeah. and, you know, and, and show shit going on, talking about doing <laughs> exciting things with music and props and dance and all this sort of stuff. And that was the environment I grew up in. My dad was a solicitor. Um, but he was always very interested in all the art stuff. They had great parties and really interesting people used to come around and, and that kind of thing. So it was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty good, fun, open sort of lifestyle in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah and that I think that translated into how I used to behave at school. Sure so, did. Yeah. And, did, and so what, when you're at school, let's, let's sort of go there. We'd, did you know what you wanted to do? Like did you oh. think? Oh, I want to be a, a lawyer, or I want to be an events planner, or or you had no fucking idea. Because no I fucking, I I really thought I, I that I know you know I was going to say I thought I was going to be a musician, but I actually that's not true because I re, I reckon I was I was staging the concerts that our bands would go in. By the time I was in year eleven and twelve, I'd be the you okay. know the promoter of it. So yep. I'd organise the yeah the bits and pieces, hire the gear and stuff like that. Didn't do a great job of it because there was a bit too much detail in there, as is, and that's translated <laughs> into my adult career. But by I, I think by, I, but I realised that I wasn't really good enough to be a muso. Like I liked it; it was fun, yeah. but I had enough self awareness to realise that I wasn't, you know, that good. So I thought. So I decided I wanted to do journalism at one point, but didn't get into the course that I wanted to do. And then I qualified. Uh, I applied for two things: applied for journalism and media. Didn't get into that um, at UTS, University of Technology, and then I, but I, at the same time, I'd applied for a Bachelor of Science in Psychology at New South Wales University, which is where I ended up getting into. Mm-hmm. So I did, so when I left school, I did a number of years, um, mainly because I failed so many times because I was an idiot, <laughs> but I just, like, I, yeah, I did a science psychology degree. I managed to turn a four-year bachelor degree into a seven-year. I bet you had a good time, though. I did, I did, I did, I, I did third, I actually did first, my dad used to joke that I was specialising in first year psychology, <laughs> especially because I, I did it once and failed, I did it a second time and dropped out and I did it a third time and finally smashed it and went on and did pretty well. So, And, and why psychologists? Because that's what you could get into or did you I, think you yeah, like fuck with people's heads? No, I, I had it, I, again, I had a thought that I, someone, I just thought I'd be good at it, like I thought that, my vision of psychology was that I would end up doing counselling and stuff like that. And I, it yeah. quite appealed to me. I'd done some stuff in youth groups and that when I was when I was younger, mainly to try and meet girls and that sort of thing, but it was particularly unsuccessful with that as well. So I just I thought psychology seemed to be something that, you know, that I would like and would be good at and I liked talking to people and I was interested. I didn't realise that the course that I was going into was so, even though it was a Bachelor of Science, which should have probably given me a tip, but it was a very scientific psychology degree. Lots of research, stats and rats and all that sort of thing, not a lot of touchy-feely stuff. Okay. Um, so I did. I ended up doing a thesis. My thesis was in um, Alzheimer's and that okay. kind of thing. So I ended up doing a thesis in that about how certain it was a how certain um it was a what was it it was an antibiotic actually that could cross the blood blame blood brain barrier and i did a whole my thesis was how that would maybe increase learning outcomes in people with um alzheimer's or other forms oh, of wow. dementia yeah so that's well, so i did, did interesting that. stuff yeah it was pretty cool i i managed a, a, a the rat laboratory at the university for a few years and <laughs> i was i was yeah i was a bit yeah i had a by the time I got to the end of third year at university, because it had taken me six years to get there, my yeah. overall my overall grades weren't really good enough because they count all your failures, unfortunately. They only counted my successes, I'd be fine. I was wasn't <laughs> wasn't qualified enough to get into I wasn't into get into the thesis year. I was oh, only yeah. going to be able to do a group thing, and I'm shit in group projects. You know that you ever done group work with people, no matter what, like there's always some idiot who doesn't pull their weight. 100%. Just doesn't do it. Yeah, that was me. So that was always me. So I didn't want to do it because, again, I knew I'd let the team down and they'd hate <laughs> me and stuff. So I got, I went through this long process of 
I got a job at the laboratory. This is all trying to suck up to a particular supervisor. But a job in the laboratory ended up making a special application for to get put into thesis, did it, loved it, and then left university and went straight into events and never worked in psychology. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is what you learned there, I'm betting you use today on an everyday basis. Like the people you deal with, how you deal with them and all that sort of stuff is uh, – it's a good learning exercise. Yeah, definitely. And it was just, I think, you know, it's really good, like whatever you do at university or TAFE or any sort of like qualifications which take a period of time are just valuable from an achievement. They're valuable from an achievement point of view. So whether mm. it's a six-month course doing something like doing whatever or a, or a six-year degree doing medicine, like getting through that process and particularly when you're like in your, I was very young. I was only seven. I just turned 17 when I finished my HSC. Yeah. So I was quite young and very immature when I first went to university and stuff. So like I wasn't even old enough to go to the bar at uni. I that bet you didn't, didn't stop, stop you. No, no, I didn't stop me. <laughs> so, yeah. so it just, it was the maturing and it's really, it was, it just like learning to, Starting and finishing something, it sounds basic and, and most kids are actually really good at it, but starting and finishing something for me was that was where the real value and the understanding. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and the understanding of people and stuff like that has been, I think it was it really helped with that mm. um, understanding and working with people. We did a lot of big sort of a lot of stuff on industrial and relation relationship psychology, not like as in partners, but in interpersonal relationships. Yeah, and, it's good for business. Yeah, it is good for business, you know, and it's good for teamwork and it's good for, you know, for being the leader of, of an organisation as well. So we always we entrepreneurial as a kid? Uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, mm. I used to, I mean, I loved money. That was the start of it. We, my, you know, my cousin and I, um, my, most weekends we'd be out touting around like during summer and all that sort of thing, always scabbing up and down the road trying to clean people's cars for money and Nothing all that sort that. of stuff. Nothing yeah, wrong with that. Crack life, mate. Oh, no, exactly, you know. We'd occasionally chuck shit on the cars to offer to clean it off. <laughs> <laughs> but um, now we do that sort of thing and then, you know, always had always had jobs from when I was when I was sort of, I think, like 11 or 12, um, you know, just just always looking to do stuff. And then doing the doing the concerts when I was in Europe and like the last couple of years of school was was pretty good fun. Um, yeah, I liked I liked that. And even even things that weren't for you know I mentioned youth groups and stuff. We were in a couple of funny old youth groups. And I always liked sort of running for office and getting voted in and stuff like that. Oh, nothing wrong with that, man. It's yeah. a, it's a good they're good learning experiences in life. I I yeah. believe. Yeah, so totally. so mum was in events and all this sort of stuff. So when you come out of your university with your uh, with your bit of paper after six years, did you um, is that something you went and did with mum or did you just yeah. sort of get into events? How'd that work? So how that worked was um, it was I'd finished uni. I had a job offer to go and work um, at Sydney University, um, and Mum said, "Look," and I'd worked with her, like going. I used to go and do stage management and stuff like that as well for her. And she said, she said to me, "Look, you know, you should have a go at events and 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 this sort of stuff. Come in and have a look at production work." Um, she said, "I think you'd be really good at it, and you know, you've been doing you've, you've done the one degree for seven years now. Maybe you can take a, <laughs> take a gap year off psychology and." And see what happens. So, so I th- thought that sounded that and actually it sounded really good. And and my I got on I, my mum and I were close and we got on well. And I did I did really love that. So, I went and worked for mum. Um, there was just three of us in the business at the time: her, me, and and her um, her manager or event event production coordinator, lovely lady called Jean McLeod, who's got on to amazing things with Channel 9. She was, I think she's the head of publicity of Channel 9. Fabulous. Anyway, oh, so wow. I went, yeah, went and worked for her and I just took to it. Like, and mum, like, I, like, I just, yeah, I just really took to it and I also took to the finding new contract side of it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, with this was 19, I'm just going to say this was like 1995. So it was like the, and I identified sport as being a really you know people were doing pre-match shows and all that sort of thing i would just identified sport as being a something a that i because i loved footy i didn't play yeah. it but i loved loved watching footy loved like like rugby league in particular union and that sort of stuff so we i and sport was starting to go 
was starting to go big right around that time. Fox Sports had sort of come into Fox Sports had started. Yep. This is the year before Super League, so the ARL was still running things. It was just a busy and exciting time. Super Rugby was on the cards, all this sort of stuff. Rugby was going professional. And so we – so I started – I got a couple of, like, footy clients. We did a we did a Rugby League grand final back in so my first year. We got the Rugby League as a client. We did their grand final in 95, and then it all fell apart with News Limited. And so when you say you did their grand final, what did you do for them? Oh, we put on their pre-match entertainment, you know. At the ground. At the ground, yeah. So oh, thousands awesome. of, yeah, kids, you know, remembering this is it's not this is twenty-five years before Macklemore. Um so <laughs> and I'll I'll no, don't let me forget to tell you about my I was involved in the Billy Idol thing in two thousand and two. I don't know if you I can see you got a rugby is that a rugby league jersey? That's a man you? that's a manly jersey, yes, mate. Manly jersey. I, I actually was a manly supporter growing up. Love Graham Eady. What's the like, was? That's mate. I saw the light and moved on. No, Super League. <laughs> Where, uh, I'll come back to. I'll where'd you go? Back. Where'd you go? Uh, Who do you now support? I, now I support. I support two teams, which is weird. The two teams that I work for. Yeah, who I love? Melbourne Storm and oh. the West Tigers. You couldn't support two different clubs. I think West. I think my heart's forgive you because you're, huh? you're the Tigers. I forgive you because you were born and lived over there. Yeah, but. The storm, mate. Come on. Oh. The cheats. Biggest You're cheats. On the cheats. I know. You gotta although, love it. although they were on the receiving end of the greatest grand final in history at 40 nil. Oh, I know, exactly. <laughs> so, you, so you're welcome. Um, thank I you think, very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, th- I think I think, mate, if we look back into the sixties and seventies, I think I think there was a lot of brown paper bagging and Oh, there you know, must have been. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it would have yeah, so <laughs> um so anyway, but that's that was so I, I really took to the event side of like took to the business side. We we got we got a few new clients and all that kind of stuff and we're having a good time. Um my original plan was to do it for a year and reevaluate. Um yep. unfortunately my my dad, who'd had cancer, he got cancer as a quite a young man at forty-four. Um, he was only 50 at this time. He, after six years or nearly seven years in remission, about halfway through that year, my dad got sick again. Um, and yeah, and this time he, he didn't make, he, he, he got really sick. So mm. by the time, and he didn't, so he passed away in April 96. So my, as soon as he got sick, my mum obviously just, you know, she was not it. Yeah, yeah, she was cared for him. She was out of the business. Not, not out of the business, but, you know, really took a big step back. Um, I was, you know, it was Jean and I were able to keep running things with ourselves and, you know, um, and so by the time, and we did some really good things. We had Australia. We did Australia Day for the New South Wales government. We did that grand final. My dad came, was able to come to all, like a lot of that stuff, even though yeah. I was really, really sick. Um, and then, then he passed away, as I say, in April, 1996. So how old was uh, he? He was 51 years old. He was 51. That's fucked, and, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It was, it was, it's completely fucked. I was. My, my, well, I my old man when he was 58 and yeah, uh, it's yeah, just yeah. shit. Yeah. No, feel, no other way. I feel your pain. There's no other word for it other yeah. than it's fucked. They've gone too young and, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a really hard time in your life. Yeah. And then, like you know, were you was your did your dad did he have an illness? Was it something? Yeah, liver disease. Yeah, yeah. So it sort of went on for a while. Then yeah. he got better, and then he got sick again. So very similar, Sim- similar trajectory. Story. Yeah, mm. it's a it's the curse and the blessing of that protracted illness, and the the curse is that you see see them sick for so long. Yeah, and and see them struggle and not win, and like yeah. my you know. And then, and the blessing though is that you get to prepare and spend so much time and and all that sort of stuff with them as well. So it's, I don't know, it's fucked. It's fucked it's either fucked. way. Pretty yeah, much. So, yeah. So we. So he he passed he passed away with with us sitting around him, um, which was, yeah, which was. Yeah, shit which house was, is the word you're after. Yeah, shit house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's inc- yeah. And then and then by the time. By the time that, like, we and I, like, you know, people, I, I did, I didn't lose myself in my work or anything. Like that. I didn't, wasn't doing that much stuff, but I did keep focused on that work side of things. And that, by the time, 
by the time we sort of resurfaced, like by the time our heads came up for air in any way after my dad died, it was like, well, the whole thing about taking a year and then reassessing it, just this is what I was doing. Mm. By then. I was in events by then and this is my business and it was intertwined with my mum and that was, you know, because it was my mum and my sister and I left. So the, the fact that I was working with my mum was probably more important yeah, you know, looking else. back than anything else. So we just kept doing that. And, but, you know, it was whilst the set, whilst there was a very, and I named my dad, my, my name, my company for my dad, it's a silly name, but it was called Out There Productions. And I always thought, thought about him being out there and, Nice. So it wasn't like a. That's not silly, there. mate. That's one no, of those no. things that it's that hug you need on a daily basis. That's all yeah. that is. Gives yeah, that, so it's that bit of warmth. Yeah, it's true. And you know, my clients always thought it was us saying, "Oh, yeah, remembering it's the '90s." Oh, yeah, you're out there. <laughs> so now, yeah, now I say, "Yeah, that's it." Of course we are. No problem. Of course we are. Yeah. Too long a story to explain, and it's not actually as fun as that. So. And were you yeah, single through this time? No, I had. I had a part. I had a partner. Um, through most of my early 20s, I was um, – oh, not speaking poorly of her, I was very bad at relationships in that I I didn't want to be in it and I just was too hopeless to, you know, to, to invest the time properly and stuff like that. So we – so I had, a, I had a partner for about five years um, mm-hmm. and we, we broke up short – not shortly, about a year after my dad passed away. Um, but she was overseas for a fair – for about two – for about a year and a half, which helped – Sort of, you know, in the sense that we didn't have to be together. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Have to, I didn't have to take on the thing. Of, like, I was too much of a coward to actually break up with her, so I was a bit scared of her. And, but then we ended up breaking up when, um, with my, with one of my current. When I was, I went to see one of my current business partners, Andrew B, and he came into the business. He's a, a genius, a musical producer, director, creative guy beyond belief. And I went to see him and his wife with their first, with their son, Jack. So he was, I was only 27 or something like that. Never wanted to get married. Didn't want to have kids. No, of course not. No, of course (laughs) not. I went there with this, with this lady that I was going, that I'd been with for a long time. And it was just like a light bulb thing. Like I looked at my friend and his missus with their baby and they're just falling over each other with excitement and love and everything else. And I looked at them and I went, I do want to have fucking kids. And I was like, but not with you. (laughs) So, yeah, so we, I broke up with her the next day, and so, so, I, I, and I had girlfriends off and on, but I was very focused on business for quite a few years after that. Yeah, and then so we're we're into probably what not what year are we in now? Two thousand odd. Yeah, we're just coming up to two thousand. So we so we're coming up to two thousand. We did it. We did a um, we did some Olympic work, which was fantastic. We did. Um, I really loved that. It was a really how great good time. was the Sydney Olympics? Yeah. It was I, was awesome. living, I was living in London. We actually came back for it. Yeah, okay. It such a good event. Yeah, it's coming up to 20 years now. It's 20 years this year. It's amazing, so. But the way they even, like, they shut down all of the um, – and you guys probably did this. They shut down all the car parks and turned them into nightclubs. <laughs> That's it. No, we were, we were it was genius. The, it's really cool. It's, <laughs> I just – yeah, it was, it was a really terrific time. And we'd done – so by that time – so by that time the – the NRL had been formed, yeah. right? So the NRL had been formed and um, my client from three or four years before when we'd done the Grand Finals in 95, so we were just, we were doing bits and pieces. We weren't particularly, we had, what did we, we had, a, we had a few clients was working for, at that stage, working for the for the Melbourne Storm. Um, so we started with that club, which is why I have such a great love for them. Because yep. And what do you do for- what we did their what we call sports presentations. So basically, it's this—it's the music, the fireworks, the the big screen, the announcers, okay. the cameras, yeah. all that. The, any of the palaver that goes on the field. Work with the broadcasters to make sure the schedule all works and stuff. You get the clubs, the footy teams out. That kind of—it's a niche sort of form of event management called yeah, sports press. But it's but it's the it's crowd engagement. It's this. It was a real focus. It's been a real focus of sports since around the nineties of getting getting crowds actively engaged in the process of sport to translate across broadcast to make the event seem amazing. State of Origin is possibly one of the greatest examples. Yeah, Capital, capitalizes on the tribalism that's there, yep. or or creates new followers. So 
you know, it, it was lots of, there's a lot of, sports are very competitive marketplace. Everyone says that and it's very true. And when there are crowds, it's sport not, not like at the moment, but they're always competing for that. They're competing against each other. So AFL, football, netball, um, um, rugby league, et cetera. Everyone, they're all competing against each other for that crowd to come to the event and also against them in broadcast and then also competing against their own broadcasters. Yeah, so that yeah. live crowd is is gold. It's what makes and what makes the vibe. It's what makes Lotto Land or Brookvale Oval heave on a Sunday. What makes Leichhardt Oval an amazing place to watch football. It's a place, amazing game to watch on telly is that crowd. You know, you yeah, I don't 100%. know if you you know you look at a you know, so anyway that's so that was so in 99, NRL had been formed back in, I think, end of 97. We were working for Storm in 98, um, doing other bits and pieces with Australia Day and so on. And then in 99, we got called up by my old client who said, this is like when footy finals start in August or something like, yeah, yeah first August week of September. September. Yep. Yeah, we got a call in July saying, hey, would you guys be interested in doing the sports press for all the final series? But we're not, but not the grand final, just the final series. Like, fuck yeah, we can do that. And so we did that and then about, I don't know, two weeks, and this is like with six weeks' notice, and then like about a week later he said, do you want to do the grand final as well? Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that was, so we did that. So we had the rugby league as our client for only for about four years. Um, we had, we were doing rugby um, as well, a bit of soccer and stuff like that. So, so how much was, input do these codes have in this? Do they say, okay, here's a budget, do yeah. that, or do you go and say, oh, I can get you this person, this person, or that person's going to cost you this much? Or Do they have much say or do they give it to you? Oh, no, it's both. It's got to be really collaborative. Like the thing the thing with working in sport, I know it's probably like everything, but, you know, they, especially back then, maybe not so much now, but especially back then, their DNA of the, of the sport was was in everyone in those offices. Yeah. They knew it. They loved it. It started to change through the 2000s and all the way up until now. But, yeah, so they knew, we always have, they really know their product, right? They know their product. At least they know what the, the core values and the principles of it are. We yeah. weren't that sort of agency that said, come and tell us, you tell us about you and then we'll tell you about you. We're not that. We just came and said, look, tell us about the sport. This is what we think would be cool. What do you reckon? Work collaborative and then come up with, come up with a program that was, our stuff was always cost-effective, really easy to implement, worked all yeah. the time and was really focused on making sure that the crowd from the time, the 10 minutes before or whatever it was, from the time you announced that team list through to the moment the teams ran on the field that the crowd was at fever pitch and then by the time, depending on the event, by the time it got to kick off or the national anthem, that the place was Burko. That, yeah. was, that was it. That was it the entire brief as far as we were concerned. And you're fans, so you know exactly what people want. Yeah, you do. Well, you know, you know what they you know how they want to feel, right? You know, yeah. and, and I think sport sport is can get really overcomplicated. Um, people want to go, they want to know who's playing. They want yeah. to know that they want to know that there are other people in the stadium that support the team they support. No matter yeah. whether they're the home or the way team, they want to know, they want to know um, that it's cool and it's it's this is the it's the environment to jump up and shout to yeah. enable that because I think as society's gotten older, like some people get a bit disaffected by that. But anyway, that's it's really that and just play some rock and good music and let off some bangers and people go, yeah. Like that's really that's as simple after. as that's all they're after. And if they can just get the beer price to be fucking reasonable, and then it it's a good, good. day. And tastes good, and get away for could go back to full strength beer, and that would be great. But it would make life a lot easier. It would make a life a lot easier. <laughs> so my 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 rugby league career, unfortunately, came to a crashing halt um, the night Billy Idol didn't perform. So um, what happened? Tell me the story. What happened? So oh, it's a sad, it's a bit of a sad one. We were at so our job for the NRL this year was they had another producer deliver the Billy Idol component. Our job was really at that point was just stage management, show calling, so actually doing all the queuing and the timing and stuff. Um, and what had happened was that with Billy Idol had come in, we'd done rehearsals all week. It was awesome. I got to ride in a hovercraft with Billy Idol, which was very exciting. <laughs> I ta- taught him how to say I love my footy. Um, 
in the thing. And we only found out during the rehearsal process, we only found out during the rehearsal process that from our bosses that the whole entire production was being packed up, going out back to a Triple M festival and then coming back on the day of the, sh- of, the day of the grand final, we were like, what the, that's fucked. You can't do that. That is so yeah. risky. It is really, really risky. And they, I mean, they, there wasn't anything they could do about it. And, yeah. and it went away. It came back. There was a problem with, I think it was the keyboard, shorted out the, um, shorted out the generator that was powering most of the, most of the PA and the stuff on the stage and the rest was history. And, um, yeah, and and basically, most of the people who were involved in the show got fired, including us. And that really? was even though yeah. it had nothing to do with you. Oh, uh, look, you know, we're all there. You know, yeah, we're all there. Cool. We're all part of it. You know, it's just I wish we hadn't um, been fired. But actually, the pe- the only people that didn't get fired was the actual producers of the show, but um, everyone else did. So, and what, you know, what did he do at the time? The producer or Billy? Billy. He got fucking really angry. Oh, sure. <laughs> so it's like, it's like I can laugh about it now, but it just like they mentioned Billy Idol on Roy and HG. I was listening to it two weeks ago, and I still fucking get a shiver <laughs> like about it. But so, so you can imagine it. So it's on Channel Nine. Billy's out there, and it just and it and it just all like and the drummer does that into the camera. It just was really. All very unfortunate. <laughs> and my state, and it's just, and you just like, so I'm the show caller. I'm saying, obviously, something bad's gone. <laughs> what the fuck's going on? And no one, everyone's too busy to talk to you and let you know what's going on. They're trying to fix things and stuff. I've got one stage manager, Thumper McBee, standing. I said, oh, How's it looking? He said, It's not looking good. He does, no one's smiling. And it, and it eventually, and I'm trying to call the, my client as well and say, Look, because, you know, you're also mindful, like we're getting close, like you've got to make a call at some point because there's a broadcast kickoff at, say, it's Yeah, yeah, for sure. And everything's, you've only got a window to do this show and I've already, you know, it's just, this is fuck. We've got to get it off as well. Not only everybody, we've got to get it all off. <laughs> like, the, it's hum- like the, talk about the walk of shame. I'm Anyways, sure. So How anyway, good with the crowd? Do they give me a Totally give me I mean, they're all laughing. They, this is yeah. the thing. They they're like it's an Australian crowd, really. Oh, totally. They couldn't yeah. care less. There was even, I think it's even better when it fails. Like, it's just like they're just <laughs> in raptures about it. So eventually Thumper says it's not happening. And I'm trying to get my client to say, "I'm. can I pull it? Can I just, yeah. no, one's answer, no one's answering from the NRL on the radio. So I'm just like, uh, just get it off. Make the call. <laughs> get that heap of shit off the field and they drag the stage off. Billy goes off and I I had a football, I had a footy that I really wanted him to sign <laughs> and I had made the stupid mistake of not getting him to sign it before. The, the thing he was like, no, no. The stage manager said, no, he said he'll sign it on Sunday. He did not sign my football at all. I said to Thump, I said, can you go, go and get him to sign the foot? And he said, fuck off. <laughs> Billy Idol's in a... I really hope you've got that ball framed. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. This is where you should have signed. Should have signed, yeah, I did. Uh, I had it for a while. I used to sit on this thing in our office, like with the, the number of events we do, and we've done probably a thousand live events in our time, if not more. You're always going to have a couple of failures. It's just is that the, the worst? That's the most... Yeah, that is the worst by a long shot. Like I had, like, it was just awful. It's not like, you know, you have a bad day in the office and five million people watch it go down on television. Especially a grand final as well. Oh. <laughs> Couldn't have ever been a semi where no one was really watching. But yeah. No, I know. Exactly. So anyway. Oh, that's, that's funny. So that's why we make, that's, that's, our, that's our greatest failure. We've, we've had lots of successes, but. What's your biggest all, success? Oh. There's heaps, heaps of different ones. I'm sorry, I'm going to sound up myself, but like we've had really, we've done some really great things and really different ones. So I'll, I can probably, I'll look at two very diverse things that we did. In 2008, there was this thing in Australia called World Youth Day, right? Which is the mm-hmm. Catholic Church. It's like their big youth festival um, and stuff. And it's, it's massive. Like there is, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people come from, and it's held every four years. It's like the, it's like the Catholic Olympics of shagging. Because I think all that happens, right, is that all these young Catholic guys from mostly a lot of them from Europe and South America and Asia come into Australia, 
at this particular one and you stage these massive live events. So we did, we did with six months' notice, we were given six months' notice to be the creative and technical producers for their four big broadcast events. So we did, so the Barangaroo site where Jamie's building the Cathedral of Cash yeah. um, was, that was, a, that was a temporary sort of um, uh, site for World Youth Day. So we did one mass of 140,000 people. Um, we did, we did, when the Pope himself arrived, there were like, so there's 100,000 people for a mass that he wasn't even at. Then he arrived. Wow. Then he arrived and then we did a service there with 150,000 people, like in one venue. That's wow. like, it's enormous. And then we went four days, like two or three days later, I can't remember, we were at Ramwick Racecourse and we did a, my team, we did a, it was a 24-hour production from about midday on one day. We went all the way through the night and, we, and 250,000 people camped on site. Wow. They were there and they were, we did it, it like there were, I don't know. I, it was like music. concerts and stuff? Yeah, it was all, it was all like religious-y stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but it was, you know, it was still, it was still massive. Um, 250,000 people on the Saturday night and 400,000 people on the Sunday for the final service. It was broadcast to a billion people around wow. the world and nothing went wrong. Like, I you know, it was, it was just Praise awesome. the Lord, brother. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and it was funny because you sit in this, I know, you sit in the control, like the control facility, like you said, a rock concert, big yeah. house tower and all that. So we're sitting there, show call position. All you can see are the... 3,000 people in front of you in this massive fucking stage. And every so often you just, I'd, when they were in the middle of something like a hymn of some sort, I'd drop my comms quickly and just run to the back of the tent and open it up and just go, fuck. It's like this weight. There's like 300 and no, there's like 400,000 people just sitting behind you. Do you know? And it was, insane, that was, it? It, was it was insane. It's like the biggest, biggest live crowd at an event in Australia and genuinely so. And like we had a couple of hysterical things. Like the Pope is the most watched person in the, in the Did world. Did you meet him? No, good, no, good, good God, no. But one of my stage managers, Pat McManus, who um, later went on to stage manage the strip shows at Summonats, he was the <laughs> stage manager for the Pope. He reckons he's, yeah, he reckons he's the only one who's ever like within a six month period. No. 10-month period done the strip done a strip show and the Pope. So he said I was close enough I could have licked him. <laughs> but we did we um we had one funny thing where they had this big parade of all the bishops in the middle of the mass, right? And the Pope's on the end of it. And that was very like it's it's just you know the organ plays very dramatic, right? There's like 200 bishops or something in this parade. Looks like something out of Game of Thrones. Anyway. And the Pope's meant to be in the back. And we're not allowed to, like, at that point, he's in his special thing out the his back. Car. He's, and he's, no, he's, his car's pulled up to this special holding area, which is, and like, in the AFP and ASIO and all, like, it's that level of stuff. They're all yeah. over it. There are, two, there are guys that travel with him with machine guns. It's yeah, full on. Anyway, so we're, we're like, okay, so the organ's playing and, and stuff, and we're waiting for a cue from the AFP, say the Pope's ready to go, and then we can send this procession. All on live telly. So anyway, so the big Richard from the AFP comes up and goes, hey, Andy, send him. He's ready. You go, great. So I send the cue and then I reckon 15 seconds later, Richard comes running back, ashen face. He's not ready. I was like, <laughs> fuck, it's too late. All these bishops are like sort of strutting down the aisle and stuff and the Pope's in the shitter or something. Trying to, you know, and so, Put his gown on. Put his gown on. And it is literally like a farce. So I've got a stage manager hiding behind cameras, pointing at the wizard, and the organist is like, "Where's he coming?" And that sort of thing finally comes out and goes on. It's just, yeah, it was just, it was just crazy. And like he somehow managed to turn up at Randwick half an hour earlier than he was supposed to. And it's like, how does the and all because we've got like massive control rooms and stuff, and and we're we're in the production, the control room, which is up at Randwick, up in the main thing. They've got cameras all over the city and cops and this and that. They're all describing it as if he was half an hour away. And then I'm watching on a, on a camera. I can see the Pope Mobile. And they've said he's somewhere else. I'm thinking to myself, that's weird. I didn't think we had cameras there. Oh, okay. And then I go, fuck, that's, he's here. <laughs> so he's like, is he's he tricked them all. Tricked them all and everyone's saying, get more babies to the fence for him to kiss. 
Slow oh. him up. <laughs> Throw more babies at him. Throw more babies at him. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, so that's that was – and we just, like, you know, it's one of those crazy – It was it's the sort of show or project that should have been given to a much bigger group of people. Yeah, yeah. But we were, we were given it, like, as I said, six months out to pull all this stuff Why together. Why are you? Oh, we were – I don't know, to be honest. We had been doing a bit of music. Like we'd been putting together, my business partner, Andrew, had been doing orchestrations and stuff like that for mm-hmm. um, for for the big orchestras playing, but there was no leadership. So they got us in to sort of help them lead that project and then they just went, fuck these guys. And Because we were saying, but how, like you've got this big stage and all this sort of thing, but there's no centralised coordination of anything that's happening here. There's no producer or production manager no one's talking to the broadcasters all they didn't know anything that was going it was just they said we could it's like a footy match so yeah, we, yeah. we could fit in there and do this for you and they went sure <laughs> <laughs> they sort of kind of liked us by then um, yeah, so we yeah, took a really enough. took a small job into a big one and then as a complete power a complete contrast i think probably the summer nats yep. and stuff like that is now my you know, your baby for, is the baby and and that's why you own you said yeah we do so myself and two business partners own that Andrew B who is my longtime business partner and my cousin Dominic and we've owned that for twelve years and came in knowing nothing about it um, nothing about the car scene and all that kind of stuff and and now it's grown into it's grown into a stable of four events with MotorX Red Center Nats Walking Nats and Summer Nats. Um, it's a much bigger business than it was when we bought it. Um, we just love the people, love the love the community that put it on. Um, I don't know anything about cars. I couldn't tell you the difference between torque and horsepower, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but I do know the people and that kind of thing. And we've, um, yeah, and it's a, it's a, just it is that is really what we do now. Um, you know, bringing together. All these sort of fantastic cars and crazy people, and putting parties on in interesting parts of Australia, and it's yeah, it's fantastic. That's brilliant, isn't it? And so yeah. now, now we're what twenty three years in. Yeah. Has it changed? Is it better, worse? Oh, it always changes and stuff. And like you know, it's all like individually. It's you know, I've gone from being the youngest person in the room to being one of the oldest, um, yeah. and that's that's a natural transition that happens in business. I, I've been, I've done what my mum has done and I've ended up, well, we as the Summonats and also ended up having a couple of wise heads and surrounding ourselves with really good, young, interesting people who are motivated and, and excited about the job they do and challenge That's us. Awesome. They challenge us about things. Um, we're very big on as a management sort of thing, very big on people taking responsibility, ownership and the credit for shared credit or whatever, but to, to feel that sense of ownership and pride and the stuff that they do. Um, the events are, you know, and it's something that, you know, even this COVID time, I think people, when they come back, people are going to like, like people always appreciate them. There's something innate about the way that we love to enjoy things is that we love to do it in groups. Yeah. 100%. That's why, you know, people are excited about. I mean, I was excited to go to a restaurant with eight other people in it with my wife the other night because yeah. there are other people around. You know, and you can actually converse with them. And you, yeah, yeah, we, we just amazing. like doing that. Don't we? That's why we like standing on the side of a field watching footy. It's not that's so just, true. <laughs> it's not just about the sport. It's a. It's an identity. It's a gathering. It's a. Um, it's a. It's not just the distraction from everyday life, but it just. It's a way for us to find a simple method of communicating. You look at like, communicating with each other that doesn't require anything particularly deep, but yeah. it's still really rewarding. I can, like, if you take, you know, you, I was talking to someone, I was talking to a mate who runs a coffee shop he used to be in. He said he used to be, actually used to own a <laughs> rugby league team in England in the Super League, witness. Anyway, he was saying his 15-year-old said to him that it was, the one thing he missed about sport was having that to talk to about his dad. It wasn't the playing, yeah. it wasn't and that sort of thing, but it was the stuff to talk about. And I think that I think that as society, all these things that we're interested in means that we can fulfill that need to communicate and be close with each other and have an intimacy of shared something shared without really having to fucking know each other. 
Oh, 100 percent, mate. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we did our fantasy football for the first time ever this year. Me and yeah. my two boys, my 11 and 12 year old boys, and they got no idea what they're doing. But at the same yeah. time, like, oh, dad, I traded this bloke, I did that. I got no idea what they're doing either. But the whole point is, it's all but sport brings people together. Yeah. Or, I, or I can go with a mate to the footy, not say a word to him. Cheers, we have a beer together, we watch the game, we go home, and on the way home we talk about how good that was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. And it's, it's, it's the same with music and it's the same with cars. Yeah. Like, you know, that you sit there and it, or it's the same with any, anything, you know, in that sort of that sort of gathering thing. Like all the guys from the summer ads, and this is what I love, they just, they come, so many of them come every year and they have the same but different conversation about their cars, um, catch up with each other a bit about their families and all that sort of thing, but really talk about the scene. And it is because we like sitting next to each other and we like standing around with each other and we like doing things together, but we sometimes just don't want to have to think about it too much. Like yeah, 100%. We've got enough to think about. Like it's hard enough maintaining close relationships with your loved ones and your kids and your very close circle of friends. But this is these events and gatherings of people are a way to get and just share something and go and feel intimate and close and connected without as I say, without having to make that massive investment of time because we just don't have it. But when you go and you sit next to some guy, you're talking about the footy again, some guy you don't know and he's got the same jersey on as you. Yeah, your brothers. You know, your brothers, right? When I went to the – when I was wearing my Melbourne Storm jersey, I wanted to, to many a grand final, some of which they've even been able to keep the trophy for. <laughs> that um, like the um, – I we went to the 2016 grand final where the Sharks beat the Storm, right? Yeah. I took my kids and, uh, you know, because they were young, they didn't know, they, they support whatever dad supports. But anyway, so the game's over. We get on the train um, to go back into the city and because we're Storm supporters, the train's full of Storm supporters. There's no one standing around to watch the watch the grand, watch the yeah. post-match presentation. So we get on and there's this one guy sitting there, an older dude in a Cronulla Sharks thing, and he's the only Shark supporter in the whole thing. And I was standing there with my boys who were a bit miffed about it all. And I started talking to them. I said to the Sharks guy, I said, mate, congratulations. Like, you must be so stoked. You must be really happy. Um, you know, how long have you been, like, you've been waiting since 67? And my kids were like, how can you, like, how? And I was, I was just, even though I was devoted for the storm. Yeah. Like, you know, as a, as a fellow fan, you can look at the other guy you're because, happy for him. You know what? Because he was on his own. He wasn't surrounded by a bunch of other shark-loving <laughs> fucking fuckwits from the Shire. No, I don't mean that. But, you know, but, but, but that was the thing. Like, we just so really, true, mate. Yeah, you really connected because even though he was on the opposition team, the Storm, like I, knew, like, I just wanted to be part of his happiness in that sense. I'm not thinking that way at the time. I just – but I think about, like, why do I love doing that? Because I could see he was happy – I've, I think I wanted him to be able to talk to someone about how good he was feeling, so he did. So I spoke to him and he talked, and he just rabbited at me all the way into town about how much he loved the Sharks and how he'd been supporting them since since they started and goes through every game and all this, all that kind of standard stuff and just that he just was the best day of his life. Which is amazing, isn't it? And yeah. you know, the other thing that you get out of that is that you went to university for such a long time to learn how to talk to him. Yeah, probably. That's right. But it's, That's psychology you know, degree paid yeah. off, mate. No, exactly. But it's like, you know, when you go to pubs, right, man, and you see, I don't know, you're watching a band play or this is about the eventing side or or you're watching the footy at a, at a pub or you're watching a band play or whatever, you have these conversations with people that you just would never talk to. They no, never come into your life yeah. without that. I'm at a music festival, you know, and I'm standing there, you know, I remember when I was younger and stuff like that. And you see, and you just talk to people about the music, about the thing, you know. Yeah, and, exactly. And that's uh, why when events come back, and that's why they need to come back yeah. as well, because they fulfil a, a much wider bonding or they much fulfil a much wider purpose in society than I think that people actually give them credit for. Mental health, mate. That's a massive totally. thing for mental health, yeah. having, the, having the outlet to actually be able to go and do something. Yeah. Like, I'm Sorry, a big New South Wales fan, right? Yeah. And I, I'm nothing better at Origin, and I live up on the Gold Coast, is wearing my New South Wales jersey to the pub to watch the footy. because <laughs> just, just because of the banter, right? You get that yeah, banter. Totally. 
And and the thing is, as you say, guys you would never talk to for whatever reason or, or wouldn't even go um, out with, but you're having this banner and this chat and they're giving you heaps if you win and they're giving them heaps if they're losing it. And there's no negativity. It's all just banter. And yeah, I think that what that does for people's mental health is massive. By doing it at on the scale that you guys do it, especially with the things like the cars, the bands, the girls, all that yeah. sort of stuff with the summer nads, um, mate, it's a mental health outlet for men and women. Oh, absolutely, and look, and we, you know, we we take that we take that really seriously. That sort of that kind of not responsibility, but that opportunity we've been given to be part of that. Yeah. You know, we the. The people who go to Summonats are from an incredibly wide demographic of, of Australians. You know, you've got like all ages. Um, more women are coming now than obviously ever before. The growth of women coming to the event is is really strong. A lot of young guys, a lot of young guys in regional areas and stuff like that. And now our events are the physical space where they yeah. connect. Um, we made a decision, and this is one of the other things. As soon as as soon as it was clear that all car we were really we were concerned for our community about car events all across Australia being cancelled because it's so important. Yeah, of course. That, that that release, that thing of getting together in the with the community and, and, and talking about the thing they love. We were very concerned about that. We just we tried doing we've tried and continue to do different things. Like we do a we actually do a live um, YouTube podcast every Tuesday night now, which we broadcast. Um, and we all get all special guests in from the different community. We do that live, which is really good awesome. fun. We do watch parties on Sunday where we, we don't just put up old videos now of, of previous events. What we do is we play them at a certain time and we, and we chat. We do it so that they sit there, but the first time we play it, it's as an engaged event. So people yeah, of course. market the pants out and get people sitting there watching and just loving what's going on and we give away passes and all that sort of shit. We just do. We've made a commitment to do that for the rest of the time. And that's mm. just little things because that's a way of keeping keeping oh, us the fans out. engaged as well. Yeah, engaged and connected, and and they get to talk to people. You know, whereas on sometimes on you know social social as everyone know can you know can be tricky and stuff like that. Um, that you know, I think you know. People, people use social media in, in very unkind ways and that's, you know, that's just a shame of it. But you can also use it for, obviously, you use, we just try and use it really positively and, you know, keep shouting out to people and showing off like, so when people can't show their cars at shows, we're pumping it out on Facebook and Instagram yeah. and all that sort of stuff. People are getting that feedback and that love for their machines. That it's they, all they want, mate. They it's want, they you know. Want. They, they, yeah. they just want the recognition. They want actually to know someone's watching or caring or, or whatever it is. It's that virtual hug, isn't it? That, that's, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely. After. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you all day because this, this, this is one of those podcasts that mate, you're just so intriguing and the fa- the only disappointment I've got is you didn't get the Pope to sign the football of Billy <laughs> That's what I've got out of this podcast. But anyway, but there's, a few, there's a few things I always ask my guests before we wrap yeah. it up. What's your greatest ever achievement in life? My family, two boys and my wife and the fact that we um, are happy and provided for and um, and that kind of and, – and, so that would be, and then, and my family extends to the people that I work with and 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 work yeah. work with and love. So that I'm, that's my. If I have a greatest achievement so far, it's um, it's it sits right there. Who is the person or people that's had the greatest influence or effect on your life? My mum and dad, without a yeah. doubt. So my my mum to give me my. I guess like, you know, whatever creative and entrepreneurial side that I have and my, my love of events and, and, you know, putting me in this, in the business and, and my dad for his sense of compassion and social justice and, um, and his, his story for where he came from to where he ended up as a, as a barefoot kid in the Philippines to ending up to being like a high flying successful solicitor in Sydney and, um, and his, as I say, his sense of justice and compassion, and the way of treating everybody, no matter where you where they come from or what they're about, to treat everyone kind of the same and, and to be open, um, they would be. They're the two biggest influences. Sounds pretty trite, isn't it? So what's no, my biggest achievement? My family, the biggest influence is mum and dad. Nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. Okay, some quick fire questions. Ready? Sure. 
Favourite food? Oh, Japanese. Favourite song? Jump by Van Halen. Oh, great song. Favourite place in the world? Kingsliff. Wow. What's next for Andrew Lopez? Next for next for me is is to continue to rebuild um, rebuild the our events and to rebuild the and to be part of a rebuild of the event industry um, to grow this business into being really something something really sustainable um, over the next period of time and something that hopefully the people who work within our business will have and grow after we're out of it. That's a personal what's next and. Um, Sorry, that's a commercial business. What's next? And from a personal, what's next is to make sure that the enforced, um, sorry, that the change in my lifestyle around spending more time with family. I've been in the. This is the longest I've been in one spot for twenty five years. Yeah, it's amazing. Without a shadow of a doubt, and to to take the personal learnings of what's um, what's so much fun and joyful and um, rewarding about being involved in the in-depth side of family life and um, falling in love with all of that again, or maybe even for the first time because, you know, I've seen sides of my wife and my kids in the last eight weeks that were hitherto un- unknown to me. And that's, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a shame for the last 12 years, but it's a really great opportunity for the next next 30 or 40. Hundred percent, mate, and it's you do it for them anyway. So that's the thing you got to remember is the reason we do what we do is for our family, and the fact that now we've learnt that we can actually enjoy it with them as well. I think yeah. is a is a massive thing. Well, Andy, I'm allowed to call you Andrew. Andy, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for today. I really appreciate it, mate. As far as I'm concerned, you're an awesome human. Thanks for joining me. I had a ball. Thank you so much. What an amazing human. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you enjoy the rest of the Podfire podcasts and I really hope that you enjoyed Awesome Humans. Reach out to us on Podfire and all the social media channels as well as BJ Macker uh, to reach out to me personally. Have a great day.